Hi, you're listening to A Curious Christian, a podcast that explores the ways in which we think to inform the decisions that we make in a disruptive and unpredictable world. The Christian faith should be full of questions, not fear questions. Each episode is infused with a curiosity that asks what's next, what not, what if, what about, what's that, who, when, and most especially, why. Curiosity that has at its heart a longing for truth in all its freshness and beauty. Albert Einstein, the physicist and inventor, stated, The important thing is not to stop questioning. One cannot help but be in awe when he contemplates the mysteries of eternity, of life, of the marvelous structure of reality. Never lose a holy curiosity. I'm Daryl, and with my co-host Berenice, you are listening to A Curious Christian. It is a podcast that explores the ways in which we think to inform the decisions that we make in a disruptive and unpredictable world. This season, we are investigating and looking at the concept of change. Our guest today suddenly has contemplated many mysteries, especially in the world of mathematics. Anthony Bosman is an assistant professor of mathematics at Andrews University and is also a graduate of Stanford and Rice Universities, where he completed his PhD studies in knot theory. Welcome, Anthony, to our program today. Thank you, Daryl. It's a joy to be with you. It's so great to have you connect with us across the globe. Berenice and I, as the co-host this morning, are interested, first of all, a little bit about your doctrine. What exactly is knot theory? Yeah, so knot, K-N-O-T, is just like tying a knot. And it turns out there's some deep and wonderful mathematics that is um, used to analyze the, the symmetries and structures of various kinds of knots. So it's not easy to answer the question, is this knot knotted or not, it turns out. Um, and, and in my study of these knots, we, we don't just work with knots in three-dimensional settings, but we go into four and higher dimensions, and you can imagine higher dimensional knotting and how that leads to some deep questions about the structure of these higher dimensional universes. So when you've been exploring these knots, how have you seen them applied to real life? Can you give me a situation where you would use them in, in everyday practice? Is it for engineering? Is it for science? Is it for understanding of structures of atoms? How would you see them in today's world? Oh, that's a wonderful question. So knot theory started out in an attempt to understand the atomic structure of our universe. Um, Lord Kelvin, um, the, the, the chemist who um, is responsible for for the um, Kelvin measurement of temperature, he, he um, hypothesized that atoms fundamentally were little knots in, in the universe. And, and he was wrong. <laughs> um, it's, that's not the case. But, but he um, provoked us to begin thinking about knots. And for about 100 years, mathematicians were just thinking about knots without perhaps too many uses, right? It was just um, interesting puzzles for us to, to, to think about. Um, but then... Towards the end of the 20th century, we started discovering all of these fantastic applications. So one of them would be DNA. 
Um, DNA gets knotted up. We actually have little enzymes whose job is to unknot our DNA so it doesn't remain knotted. And, and, um, but not, not just DNA, you can uh, observe knotting and other physical phenomena as well. And so having some understanding of how, how things knot or how they link together can give you some deeper insights to the structure of various kinds of objects. Fascinating. That ties in really nicely with our topic today. We're talking a little bit about change. Last episode on our podcast, we talked about change in the context of a career in a very uncertain world. And your topic of knots really brings home the discussion around how that ties in with a interesting turn or perhaps a interesting angle at which people's lives currently sit. We live in a time of COVID and no one probably expected some things to happen in this space. And I wonder whether you can shed some light on the topic of education today. You've been to many universities. I think you teach in the higher education or tertiary education sector. And you've probably experienced firsthand the complexities in an environment where people are uncertain about what's going to happen. Can you tell us a little bit about how you see education and how education perhaps has changed in the context of the environment we now find ourselves in? People say that education is the gateway to the world, for example. Is that now still true? Is that now still valid in the context of COVID? Yeah, that, that's a wonderful question. And I think even if we step back pre-COVID, a lot of individuals talked about how um, higher education, tertiary education, was prime for disruption. And so if one thinks about other major industries and how they've been disrupted in the 21st century. So for instance, if you want to watch a movie, you don't go to some store to rent a video or something, perhaps like you did back back in the 90s or early 2000s, you just use whichever um, streaming service you like to watch a video. Or, or if one is to... Um, um, you know, use a taxi in any major city. I, I don't know, in, in Australia, you guys have Uber and Lyft and these various competitors that have come and completely disrupted the taxi company. Or even if you want to buy a product, you know, just the um, dominance of Amazon and other online realtors that have totally disrupted physical stores, right? And so we've seen industry after industry be disrupted. And so people were um, anticipating the disruption of higher education and trying to figure out when is it going to happen and what will the new education look like? Will, will we all just be learning from YouTube? <laughs> will we um, you know, still need to attend physical campuses? And, and there's some good reasons for that. Education is pretty um, expensive. Higher education is pretty expensive either to the individual or, or to the nation, if the subsidizing it or some combination of, of the two, often mm-hmm. do, do both. It's time intensive. And, and then one of the, I think, real challenges is, um, you know, you can spend three or four years, sometimes longer, five or six years, studying for your degree. But during those four or five years, the world has changed quite a bit. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. now you're out getting your degree and it's, it's not clear if uh, so it almost feels outdated, right? That by, the, by the time you graduate, it's almost like the skills you're learning were, were outdated. And so I think there was a lot of um, individuals had a sense that higher education needed to make some pretty significant changes. Going and sitting in the physical classroom and learning from a lecture, well, we've been doing that for over 2,000 years. You know, isn't it time that, that we figure out a new way to, to approach some of these things? Now with COVID, I think this is, you may could see it as a catalyst. As, a, as an opportunity to begin to, the universities have to seriously 
what are some alternative ways that we can deliver education? What are some um, ways that may be less dependent upon physical space, perhaps um, more remote options? And so that's, that's what we're in the midst of right now is this COVID disruption, but many people see it as part of a much larger story of, okay, we've been, we've been ready for this, we've been waiting for this, and now this is the thing that's the catalyst for it. You know, Anthony, I think one of the struggles that young adults here are facing is that not only their university experience is going to look different, like what you've just articulated, but they don't even know where to start in terms of what jobs should they train for post-graduation. Right now, they're kind of watching to see, okay, who's an essential worker and who's allowed to still work during a crisis? And maybe I should gravitate to the, towards those disciplines. Uh, but as you say, by the time you finish your degree, the world may look very different and likely in this climate, it will. When you work with young adults in your uh, university, or perhaps when you just talk with young adults in general as an academic, how do you counsel them through this process of self-discovery? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Some years ago, there was an Oxford study that came out that anticipated by 2050, half of the current jobs would no longer exist. So half of our modern jobs. And I think when I saw that statistic a couple of years ago, I was just like, half? You know, like, <laughs> that's, mm. that's a lot. But you look at it and like, look at how many jobs either have just been replaced or, or have just been entirely redefined the way that job looks. And so I think we see right, like happening before our eyes right now, the rapid transformation of the economy and how it responds to COVID and how we expect that will continue in, in the years ahead. So, so what does that mean for a young adult? I, I was talking with a student yesterday and, and he was trying to figure out what to study. So this is his first year at university. And in the States, you come with some flexibility. You can still kind of figure things out for the first year or two. And, and so I sat him down and I played chess with him. <laughs> and, you know, maybe, maybe this isn't a very um, practical um, thing. It's like he needs advice. He doesn't need a game of chess. But as we're playing chess, I, um, I, I make the point. I'm like, okay, so, so how do you play chess? You, you have to be thinking ahead three or four or five moves. Mm-hmm. But you almost never get to act out the plan that you come up with. Right. So, so it's a constant. I have lots of different ideas that I, I maybe want to try and take that bishop I want to position myself to put pressure on that side of the board, but you're constantly having to respond. And, and so you almost never, although it's important to make those plans three or four or five moves ahead of time, you almost never actually get to act out that plan. And, mm. and I think that's going to become increasingly the case for young adults um, who are planning for their careers. Like you shouldn't stop planning the next three or four or five years but you should know it probably won't act out that way at all. It's not like you can make a life plan. It's you can be constantly adapting as, as the other player, COVID in this case, and the, the change in the economy makes their moves and you respond to them. So Anthony, tell me a little bit more about that, right? So as someone is starting to plan, what types of things should they consider? Is it just what skills are going to be most useful in forecasting five to six years in the future? What sort of industries should I perhaps even take a risk on that will boom in the future? Or is there a more human element to investing in that side as well? Where does the concept of values come in? Does someone's faith influence or should it influence their choices and decisions in this arena as they navigate this path? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I think um, there's a couple of things. So when you have a, when you have a changing scene, it's going to be really important not just to be acquiring skills, 
but you want to be acquiring more meta skills, like um, you want to learn how to learn. And, and that's an, a very overused um, statement, but I, I think that it can begin to help you appreciate like, why, why am I doing, I don't know, in this class, writing this, this essay, writing this paper or whatever, and doing this research project when the particular topic's not very interesting. And it's like, yeah, you know, that particular topic probably won't translate into um, a career. But you go into the process of learning how to acquire new knowledge, learning how to become a little expert on an area within two weeks and write up a report on it, present it and communicate it. That's a hugely important skill. That, that's it's a meta skill of, of learning how to acquire new information. Um, so I, I, that's, that's huge. There's also the emotional side of, of learning resilience, right? You want to be able to um, be someone who, who, in a changing environment, is not someone who's beat down by that but is able to adapt with it. And I think education at its best is teaching teaching resilience. Um, now, when it comes to which skills you should be investing in, for the last few years, lots of people like to talk about the value of STEM degrees. And I suspect all of us on this podcast would be um, sympathetic <laughs> to, to that view that, yeah, like, you know, this seems like it's an important part of the future. I think I just saw Australia um, lower their fees for STEM courses at universities um, but raise the fees, like double for like uh, history and some other of mm-hmm. the um, like humanities, um, the classical arts. I'm trying to encourage students to to lean into these careers of the future, right? The, the careers of the 21st century. Um, and, and maybe there's some sense to that. But I think this might fundamentally misunderstand what's happening in the 21st century. So it is true that we have things like automation and artificial intelligence that are going to become increasing realities for us. And, and so you probably need some technical knowledge, right? Like um, it's, it's everyone would benefit from having some understanding of computer programming, some um, scientific literacy, um, no doubt. But the more and more that we're able to automate away jobs and that artificial intelligence is playing a larger, larger role, the things that remain of value are those things we cannot automate. It's those things that AI cannot simulate. And what are those things? It's the uniquely human skills. So when I say uniquely human, I think, I think about things like creativity, ethical judgment, right? Leadership, um, cultural competency, um, these kinds of things that are often found in the humanities, right? It's, it's in the arts where we learn to express that creativity. It's in the religious studies and studying religion and theology that we uh, wrestle with deep questions about ethics and, and what is of value and what is human flourishing. And so I, don't, I would be um, cautious to, to dismiss too quickly the value of those. Um, more broadly, I think that when you think about a rapidly changing world, it reiterates the importance of not just acquiring skills, but attending to the question of who am I becoming, right? And what, what kind of a person am I growing into? Because who you are, right, your character, your identity, your, your ethical um, core, those things I think become increasingly valuable. So Anthony, let's build on that a little bit. During your experience, maybe as a student or as a a postdoc fellow, or even now as a a academic in a tertiary education space, did your journey take those turns? Can you give us some examples of how that was weaved in or that was part of your discovery as you went through that process? Understandably not during COVID, but yet the same being able to navigate to, to build up that identity that you talk about. So when I think back to undergraduate years, um, like my, my first several years of university, I think I probably at the time thought that my math courses were the most important. 
And in a sense, I suppose there's, there's some truth to that because it prepared me for graduate studies, it prepared me for, for my career. But I, I look at all of the ways I've been able to like, advance within my career and things I think that allow me to stand out and bring value. And I think it's because I attended to other areas of my life as well, right? It's, it's so um, in, in the American system in particular, you have a little bit of flexibility in, in what you study. And with math, it's a, the, the core major is a little bit smaller, so you have more free space, elective space to study other things. And I think the fact that um, I studied ancient Greek, <laughs> that, that I studied economics and philosophy and, and took these other classes I was just interested in, I didn't realize at the time they were um, developing various skills, helping me wrestle with questions like, what does it mean to be human? Helping me um, learn how to communicate, helping me um, appreciate different cultures, uh, give a historical perspective. But all those things have come in to be immensely valuable. And, and I think in particular, we see this like in, in Silicon Valley, in, in like the tech arenas, where people will say, you get hired for your technical knowledge. So like you need the technical skills to get hired but you advance in your career for these soft skills, mm-hmm. right? So, so just if someone purely wants to like, get the most out of their career, it's like, yeah, you do need some, you need to be outstanding in some technical skills to get foot in the door. But, but if you want to rise above the rest, you, it's important to have invested in these other areas. Um, but I think the second thing I'll say is having also attended as an undergraduate to questions of character, like what is my moral co- core? What, what is going to guide me? So, so in STEM, we have a really good job. We do a really good job of teaching people to stand over and critique various ideas. But there's another aspect of being human, which is asking, well, what are you going to let stand over your life and critique you, right? And, and we don't always do as good of a job of helping students identify that, of recognizing there's a need for it. You need something to stand over you as well. If you want to experience moral growth in your life, if you want to experience character growth, you need to have something that's standing over you that you can measure that growth against, right? And and so I would hope that when someone thinks about their education, they're not just thinking about their ability to stand over and critique ideas, but they're also thinking about how they're growing up against some measure that stands over and is able to critique them and is able to then uh, facilitate growth in their life. How would you recommend that a young adult pursue that balance between the two? Is it through involvement in extracurricular activities? Is it through volunteering? Is it through, as you say, pursuing a breadth of different subjects in different disciplines? Yeah. Okay. So I'm a huge fan for for academic breadth and training. So I I think that there's there's immense value in someone who is studying some pure science to also be reading philosophy and and reading history and and um, engaging with other cultures and learning these various things. I think there's immense value to that. But I think one of the really cool things about about a university when we are able to be together in person, and this is one of the reasons I think we can't entirely lose out those in person centers, is it's such a great way for people of a variety of backgrounds and experiences to come into contact together. And I would encourage someone to intentionally explore that in, in, in whatever season, maybe they're not a university student, maybe, maybe they're a young professional at city or something, but are surrounded by people from a variety of backgrounds and different world experiences. And I think that's just fantastic to engage. Um, my, my freshman year of university, I remember I went with a group of students of different religious backgrounds 
and explored different religious traditions for a week. And so we would um, participate with the various religious communities and do acts of service with them. And that was such a fantastic chance for me just to get a sense of like the, the map of religious um, orientations in the world and, and kind of better understand and appreciate um, each one. And then in the following months, being able to follow up with some of the students and better understand um, their religious traditions. I think that's immensely valuable. Mm-hmm. And that really helps someone with like, okay, I don't just need a career. I want to live a meaningful life, right? So maybe I should try and tap into some of these traditions that for thousands of years have been asking the question how to live a meaningful life, right? I think that's that's immensely valuable. I want to touch on that topic of unlearning, especially I want to switch tack a little bit, not from tertiary education, but maybe for the families that are currently homeschooling their kids for the first time, young adults that have found themselves to be teacher of the month all of a sudden, and they're wondering, okay, what does this mean for my child's education for the next couple of years if COVID doesn't change and so forth? Does that culture of self-directed learning, uh, breadth of learning that you're discussing start at a young age? Is that something that we should be aware of as the new face of education? Or um, on the flip side, is a traditional sense of, you know, this is this is a set curriculum and this is how you should learn important at a younger age to instill discipline? So I think one of the best things you can do with a young person is to get a gen- foster intellectual curiosity. Right. Um, You know, if if you get a kid and it can be through building with blocks or it can be with um, playing around with whatever, if you can foster intellectual curiosity, that that is huge. I I think it's a shame that so often various approaches to education, especially right now, are just so burdensome on both the kids and families that it's like it stifles any room for that curiosity. But, but if you can get a kid excited about dinosaurs and excited about, you know, building and asking questions and like that's, that's gone up far away. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing I, I would want to emphasize is these character traits really matter. And so I think education done best helps make students more resilient, helps make students more honest, right? These other kinds of character traits. And, and so I wouldn't want to neglect that right now. I, I feel like right now parents have this I'm incredible pressure to like get the kids through the worksheets or to get them, you know, to, to do the online program, whatever it is that their school is having them do. And maybe that his parents, you know, I don't know this, what this is. I don't remember algebra or whatever. How can I help my kid learn how to solve for X? But um, being sure to attend to also aspects of character and then foster intellectual growth, that's going to set your kid up for, you know, uh, it's just for all kinds of exciting things. So I, I would emphasize those two, um, uh, those two traits. Let me ask you about that first one then. When you're talking about uh, curiosity, there's also curiosity about the unknown, right? So that there are known knowns and then there's unknown unknowns as they, mm. as they put it. And so I'm interested in your own journey and how did faith play a part in your discovery of the unknown? Because yes, scientific evidence may be black and white or proven or unproven, but the realm of discovering faith and some of the stuff that we're talking about in terms of characters it isn't always easy to see. How did that play a part in your own journey and discovery? Yeah, so I think for me, faith was always something that animated the world, right? It's, um, it, it makes the world even more fantastic, more wonderful. And, and I don't see any tension at all between that and scientific discovery. I think scientific discovery at its best is 
wow, the world is more majestic and wonderful and mysterious and magical than we thought it was, <laughs> right? It's, it's like you start, you know, learning some physics and it's pretty wild out there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I, I see those just go hand in hand that, wow, the world is even more amazing than, than I once thought it was. Um, so one of my favorite results in mathematics is something called, so, so there's these incompleteness theorems of Gödel. And these often, people often frame them as some kind of a negative statement that there are things we cannot know. And, and to a sense, that's, that's true. But I think um, the, the best way to frame these results has to do with the inexhaustibility of mathematics that will never be done doing mathematics. And, and that just resonates with me and, and as a person of faith with my sense of eternity, right? It's, it's just like... I have a sense that eternity is not something that is going to get dull after you know, however long and, and, and boring, but it's, it's a time of endless discovery. And, and I believe in the Christian worldview, this is what humanity was made for, that God made human to be one who is endless discovering the world and extending that creation and promoting within that creation things like justice, things like righteousness. And, and so I just think it's a, it's a beautiful vision of, of to be human is to be a fully engaged in this quest of learning. And, and I would, um, yeah, I, I, I very much resist any notion that faith somehow um, dwarfs one's intellectual curiosity or faith is somehow hostile to, to learning or hostile to scientific discovery. Because for me, it's been, it's been completely the opposite. What was your experience like studying in some of the greatest universities in the world, perhaps with people of faith, but more likely with a mix of students that don't have a faith? How did you find your educational experience and your your choices through university and perhaps what to study, how to apply your degree, what kind of postgraduate work you'd like to pursue? How did that differ from your peers and your classmates? Yeah, so on the one hand, um, we're quite the same, <laughs> you know, like like we're studying math, we're doing the same the same problem sets, we're um, working together, we have similar ambitions and goals, and um, they want to make the world a better place, and I want to make the world a better place, and there's so much solidarity in that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that you know something common about a human experience that I want to I want to affirm. Um, at the same time, though, I just think about the incredible peace that my my faith gave me often uh, at times of transition. So I, I remember in grad school in particular, I kept coming back to an ancient proverb. And, you know, it's one of these things where it's like, here I am studying mathematics, but it's this old proverb I keep coming back to. Um, and, and the proverb says that, you know, you, you make your plans. You make, you, in your heart, you plan your way, but the Lord directs your steps. And, you know, it sounds like a very wise proverb, but for me, it was so much more. There's a reality to that. And I was seeing that acted out as I was making my plans for what would I do after graduate school. And, and they had all these plans. And I think if, if it was only the first half of it, in your heart, you make your plans. If that's all it was, it would end, and you're terrified and you're uncertain and you're, it's daunting. And it's, you know, mm-hmm. but, but the second half, but the Lord directs your steps, gives you this incredible sense of, of cooperation in between Yes, I'm making my plans in an uncertain world, but um, there is a good God who is involved in this with me. And I know that sounds quite strange, I think, to someone who perhaps doesn't have that faith background because um, the God of the universe is interested in my particular life journey, right? It seemed quite strange, but it was just such a pronounced reality for me. When I look back on my life, I can, I can just see that and, and say, yeah, time and time again, I have this incredible sense that I was making my plans, but... 
in some deep way, God was involved in opening doors and directing me and giving me peace and giving me confidence. And, and so, yeah, I, I, I feel, I don't know what I would have, if I didn't have that sense, I think it would have been a lot more stressful. I think you're touching on things that apply not only during your student years, but then extend to what happens beyond. I assume now, you know, you were talking about disruption in the higher education sector. No one would have seen this coming. No, everyone would have perhaps wanted elements of this uh, to happen, but no one would have anticipated that you wouldn't have students in the classroom and that you would be using Zoom or WebEx or Lightboard or something else to teach on a regular basis. I, I guess the tenor of what you were describing also helps you to have confidence moving forward, even as someone who's delivering higher education. Yeah, for sure. And, and just for professionals as well. I was talking to my buddy last night who just got laid off recently and that introduced some visa complications and, and all kinds of things and, and a whole lot of stress. But within two weeks, had this new job offer that was in many ways better than the job he had. And we were talking about this. And I think if you were just, just to tell that story, um, as you know, I had this job and I got laid off and I was trying to get a new job and the, the very human way of telling it, you have a lot of stress, you have some relief, but for us to be able to bring in some sense of faith that, that God was guiding in this process, that even though there was a period of time when I wasn't sure what was next, I had some confidence in this, right? And now that I've gone through this, I have greater confidence God will continue to guide me. Like that, that really does something in times of uncertainty. It, it allows you to um, focus on, let's just, um, you know, in this time, I can, I can focus on solving problems. I can focus on getting stuff done because I know in the end, um, I, have, I have someone looking out for me, right? Um, I, I think it really frees you to focus on solving the problem and not be overwhelmed by the uncertainty of it all. When you were choosing where to go after you finished your studies, mm. um, why did you choose to work where you are now? Is there a vision of that university that you identify with? Is it a place where you feel that you can be the type of educator that you'd like to be? How do people choose the right tertiary education for institution to join that, that prescribes to all the things that you've described, these wonderful qualities? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I, I was very open to a variety of different kinds of jobs. And, and I don't think that there's like one great type, type of university that you need to end up at. I think you can be useful and effective doing different kinds of things in different kinds of settings. In, in this particular case, there, there were things that affirm that sense of, of providence, um, that the job opening just happened at exactly the right time um, where there were very few job openings and, and there was a number of, of things that kind of just um, all pointed and, and led at the same time. But um, one thing I really value now that I'm here is that I am able to identify with this um, idea of whole person education that we emphasize so much here. That yes, it's really important that I teach my students some fantastic mathematics and I try to do my best to um, make sure that they are doing challenging mathematics that, you know, <laughs> is um, up there with what you get at any of the best universities. And, and maybe the students don't always appreciate that, but I think, <laughs> I think sometimes they do. Um, but I can also attend to other aspects of their lives. Mm-hmm. And so um, just the other night, we did a little um, picnic, an outdoor socially distanced picnic. And, and we had someone share a, a reflection just about... Um, how to live a meaningful life, right? And, mm. and we can bring this into our discussions as a department. We can bring this into um, what we're doing in our relationships together. I, I think that's huge. 
And, and so I, I really value, I, I recognize that people are going to attend different kinds of institutions, but even if your institution is intentional about it, I think you should be intentional about it in your education. Be asking, okay, I know how I'm growing academically, but how am I attending to these other areas of my, of my life as well? How am I growing my emotional life? How am I growing physically? How am I growing my well-being? But also, mm-hmm. how am I growing spiritually? How am I growing with my, my sense of the transcendent? How am I growing with my sensitivity to spiritual matters? I think that's important to be developing as a well-rounded human. Anthony, that's such a nice place to leave it with the listeners. You know, as they go on their discovery of education and their education journey, it's not just about the skills, but it's about discovering the holistic aspect of what they're engaging in that will set them up with a curiosity for life, just as it's set up for you um, as you've illustrated and gone through and, and outlined your experience today. I just want to encourage the listeners, if you are thinking about that, perhaps leave a comment on our Facebook page or an Instagram page about what you're interested and curious about discovering next in your education journey so we can all learn from each other. Anthony, thank you very much for the time that you've put aside from your very busy schedule to join us today. And it is a privilege and honor to hear about and to listen to your views on education and curiosity in the world. That's a wrap on our latest episode of A Curious Christian. Make sure to follow and connect with us on Instagram at The Mission Collective or via our website themissioncollective.org. Whilst there, you can catch up on any of our episodes and also find out other things we are up to. Thanks for listening and hope you've been inspired to be a curious Christian.